This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. There's three points that, uh, that I want to I make tonight. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, what the competition is all about in, uh, in my mind. And I'm not an expert. Uh, but I would describe myself as a practitioner. I've had the benefit, as, as Ty mentioned, I failed miserably when I uh, enlisted in, in the Navy. And, and in fact, uh, this month, uh, January of, of 1978, and I did want to be, all I wanted to be was an airline pilot. Um, there are some ringers in the crowd. There's a, a couple of hecklers here and uh, that snuck in. And as is the way, they're sitting in the in the back row. I'm tempted to call them out uh, and, and part of my own defense. But a couple of my, uh, my shipmates from uh, Officer Candidate School uh, are here in San Diego and, and came to attend. It's a tight group, uh, what we went through, and I appreciate their, their presence here uh, today. But I'll tell them my brother and wife are here, which are a formidable trio. And if that's not enough, a good friend of our family, uh, uh, Dave Weston, is here, who is a very formidable lawyer from La Jolla. So I've got the, I've got the waterfront uh, covered from a, a defensive strategy. But I do want to talk about w- what the competition is all about. And I'm gonna, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is, is the importance of a grand strategy, as, as Ty mentioned. Uh, and the last thing I want to talk about is the military element of all of that. I'm not going to do it exactly in series. Some of this is going to be in parallel because they're, they're inter- interrelated. But let me start off by talking about uh, the competition. And, and let me characterize this first to say we have more in common with China than we have in competition. And competition is not a bad thing. So too often times we characterize the fact that we're competing with China as some great revolution. I'm always amazed at the number of conferences that uh, I've been asked to come and speak to, and, and it's characterized as the new uh, China challenge, or the new China this, or the new China, China that. Um, it, in my mind, it isn't new. As I was alluding to, I, I enlisted here in, in San Diego. Um, interesting, the discussions and the panels today about what a Navy town San Diego is. My father was in the Navy. That's why we ended up here. Um, never did a tour of duty here. So um, it's great to be back in San Diego. But what I did do is every one of my operational tours, uh, we sailed uh, from the West Coast. I was an aviator, and we were stationed in uh, all the squadrons I was in were stationed in Lemoore, California. So with the exception of, of three wonderful tours in the Pentagon, uh, they didn't come until later in my career, uh, and a two-year assignment in the Middle East uh, during, uh, during um, uh, the uh, 2006 to 2008 time frame, um, I've been deployed from the West Coast into the Pacific, into the Indian Ocean, and at times into the Persian Gulf, which is why I describe myself as a, as a practitioner, uh, not, a, not exactly a, uh, an expert. The competition that we're in um, is not defined, and this is peace, part of the military element, is not defined by what's going on in the South China Sea. It's way too narrow a perspective. So the competition that we're in is, is about the rules-based order. It's the rules-based order that was developed out of the ash, ashes of World War II in four conventions. One of the conventions was the second 
uh, Yalta Convention that actually uh, occurred about a year before the end of the war in Europe. Uh, the Pacific uh, Convention was held in, in 1951, which was actually the treaty convention for the treaty between the United States, the winning powers, and, uh, and Japan. Um, it wasn't actually signed until 1952. But these four conventions uh, were the genesis of the international rules-based system that we have enjoyed for the last 70-plus uh, years. So this rules-based system isn't an amorphous concept that exists you know, out there from a, a theoretical perspective. It's real. What's most compelling about uh, the rules that came out of these conventions uh, is not just the rules themselves, which by design was driven by the uh, uh, consensus around the world that we could not afford to solve the frictions that occur naturally on the global stage between nations with competing interests by going to war. Diplomacy and dialogue was the vehicle uh, by which we needed to resolve these differences because the aftermath, if you, if you turn to coercion and force, was, was so destabilizing, uh, certainly from a regional perspective, and uh, back then we saw it from a global perspective, and it's been commented already about uh, Herb York and, and Harold Brown's focus, uh, now that we live in a nuclear age, it's even more compelling. What's most compelling about these conventions is not the rules that were established, but they also established the institutions to change the rules. There was a recognition amongst the participants at the conference that the rules would have to change as the world changed. And so these institutions, they exist today. Some of them we see them in tribunals. It's the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank. These are the institutions that, that govern uh, the relationships uh, between uh, those nations that occupy uh, the global stage. Uh, and what we're seeing is uh, bits and pieces of dialogue uh, that have uh, emerged certainly over the last five to six years, I would say, that start to focus on this challenge in a more collective way. And, and, I, and I want to footstop at this point Peter Cowie's comments uh, about the importance of institutions like UCSD, especially those that support organizations like GPS. And it's extremely important. I just uh, did an interview with, with PBS uh, earlier today, and one of the questions that was asked was, how do we get after this problem set? And it's a collective problem that we all need to participate in. So I appreciate each one of you being here tonight and supporting organizations like GPS. Now, you may not see yourself as a direct supporter of GPS, but just by your presence here, it makes a statement that the issues we face are much more complex than we can understand individually. We have to understand these problems collectively. And you see that as, as a legacy, I think, of uh, Harold Brown and, uh, and Herb York. So what I see from a military perspective is, is this, uh, what I would call too much of a focus on military operations such as freedom of navigation operations. I'm going to come back uh, to that and talk in, in detail uh, a little more. The example that I use, uh, my, my concerns with uh, these institutions that were established to resolve differences in, in this negotiative process that occurs in, uh, in resolving differences on the global stage is the, the uh, international court finding 
that was convened in The Hague uh, to resolve the differences between China and uh, the Philippines with respect to Scarborough Shoal. Uh, now, a little bit of history here. Um, in the military, uh, nothing good happens after midnight. If you've got teenagers or you raise teenagers, it's kind of the same analogy applies, uh, you know, as well. When you get the phone call after midnight, it's usually not good news. So I, I got a call from uh, from the watch floor saying that something was going on uh, around Scarborough Shoal, and uh, they were in the process of launching a P3 to fly down there uh, to figure out exactly what was going on. Take a look at. Uh, the situation, they were hearing radio reports of something that China was doing there with respect to uh, a Philippine fishermen. There may have been a Philippine uh, naval vessel that was involved. And so my response was, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Don't launch the P-3. It's going to take Washington three or four days to make a decision. And uh, full disclosure, I got it completely wrong. It took them six days to make a decision to, uh, to send an airplane down there uh, to figure out uh, what was going on. I use that as an example, that point of, of time of response uh, as a practitioner. You know, our sense of speed, I don't think, is realistic with respect to a, uh, a peer challenger, uh, a peer competitor such as China, as China, compared to, from a military perspective, uh, how quickly we've been able to uh, to turn on events, opportunities that present themselves in uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation uh, 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 OEF and OIF in Afghanistan and uh, and Iraq. So as as that Scarborough Shoal incident uh, unfolded, um, I won't go into the tactical details of what we were seeing uh, occur, but I did approach the Japanese in the next. Uh, about two months later, and I made the comment that what I had seen there in Scarborough Shoal, I referred to it um, as uh, the Scarborough Shoal model. At this point, uh, the mayor of, of Tokyo, uh, in a run to uh, become the prime minister in Japan, uh, was uh, fomenting nationalism within Japan about the Senkaku's, Senkaku Islands. And, and his concern was is that the the uh, the government uh, Japanese government uh, was not focused enough on uh, on the Senkakus or Dayus from a, a Chinese perspective, from a national security perspective. So his solution was he was going to buy the Senkakus. Uh, so uh, the Japanese government, uh, after consultation and great discussion, uh, decided that the best way to manage the problem was to buy the islands themselves. And I'm back to the importance. I need to stop talking about GPS and talk about what a wonderful organization the MIT Center for International Studies is. Uh, but it's wonderful that we have these institutions that we can bring experts, China experts, um, uh, into uh, a forum such as this and into a uh, uh, academic forum to have these discussions with, with students uh, about uh, how complex these problems are. And clearly the, the Japanese government solution of buying the Senkakus wasn't a solution that was acceptable to the Chinese. And of course, uh, we know the history of how contentious uh, that space has been since. So spin the clock ahead to the, uh, uh, to the resolution of, of the Scarborough Shoal incident. And uh, the Philippines followed the, the rules established by the international rules-based system. And the, the first set of rules established 
back in the Pacific in, in, in the 1951 convention was that parties that have differences, they have to get together bilaterally and discuss what those differences are uh, to reach a solution. Um, and uh, the Philippines tried to do that, and China uh, chose not to participate. The next step after that is to, is to turn to the appropriate international court. The auspices of, of the differences was UNCLOS. It was the uh, uh, United Nations uh, Law of the Sea. Uh, so they went to the appropriate court, which was the tribunal in The Hague. And part of the international rules-based system says that you don't have to participate. If you choose not to participate in the court process, it has no bearing on the proceedings, that, that the court can continue with either one of the parties in absentia. And that is what happened. What's most compelling about the outcome is not the finding of the court that the Chinese claims and other claims, Taiwanese claims as well, uh, was not founded on the law as described in UNCLOS. What's com most compelling to me, again, is not that China uh, divorced itself of the findings of the court. It went to the added step to say that the, it divorced its, itself from the court that the court had no merit or, or no standing to make a decision, to make a finding with respect to uh, Scarborough Shoal. So think about how chilling this is. And, and my concern is, is that there hasn't been enough dialogue. There hasn't been enough focus on this. So if we can't resolve these differences ourselves that occur on this, on this global stage, in this dialogue between the countries involved. And if we now no longer have institutions to turn to, like the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the, the tribunals, then what is the expectation of how we're gonna resolve these differences? And I think the model that's being presented that uh, China embraces uh, the international rules-based system where they are advantaged and divorces themselves from them where they are disadvantaged is a very dangerous path uh, to go down. I'll give you uh, two more historical examples, and then I, I'm going to transition to talking about, I think, what's lacking in, uh, in this challenge uh, that we face. There was a, uh, a maritime dispute between Bangladesh and India. Uh, India, a very powerful country by every, every measure. A uh, huge economy, huge population, huge military, a strategic power with uh, nuclear uh, capability. And here's Bangladesh, this very small country, very small population, uh, a very small military. And they had this, this maritime dispute of, uh, of territory that was adjoining uh, both uh, Bangladesh and India. Both countries claimed it. And so they entered, uh, they applied the international rules-based system. They both uh, went to bilateral negotiations, and they could not resolve their differences. So they turned to uh, the tribunal in The Hague uh, to review the case and, uh, and resolve it. And uh, by everyone that has reviewed the case, the outcome of the case, every, there's unanimity in the view that Bangladesh won. It's, it, it's not as clean as that. There's some give and take there. Um, but, but clearly, India lost. And yet, India embraced the finding. So you have to ask yourself the question, why would India do that? They had the power. They easily, I mean, no one was focused on this issue. I'd be surprised. Well, this is an academic environment, so maybe many of you are aware of this, uh, this historical example. 
Um, but the reason that India embraced the decision is because they recognized the decision was not about the territorial dispute. The decision was about the mechanism that we resolve differences in the international forum uh, about uh, uh, just exactly that, how we resolve these differences. It has implications from an economic perspective when we have economic uh, differences, um, uh, uh, law differences, trade differences across the board. And then we have the added benefit of shortly after that, based on that example, Bangladesh and Myanmar decided to uh, try to resolve a similar uh, maritime that they, uh, dispute that they had between their adjoining uh, territories. What was fast, they couldn't resolve the differences, so they went to the international court. What was fascinating about this is the added advantage that an international court brings to resolving these differences, this, this unbiased view of what the problem is and what a potential solution was. So the resolution of the dispute that the court offered, which both Bangladesh and, and uh, uh, Myanmar embraced, was instead of a horizontal solution, to, to my knowledge and the research that I've done, every maritime dispute in, uh, that, that nations have had has been resolved horizontally. There's been a line drawn and says everything on this side of the land is, uh, line is, is country A and everything on this side of the line is country B. The court didn't come up with a, with a horizontal solution. It came up with a vertical solution. So as they listened to the argument of the lawyers, what they realized that one country wanted the value that was represented on the seafloor. The other country wanted the value that was represented in the water column. So they came up with a vertical solution. They granted sovereignty of the seafloor to one country and sovereignty of the water column to the other. Now, I never would have thought of that myself. And, you know, I've been a, a mariner and a practitioner of, of operational maritime law for uh, just over, over 40 years now. But it speaks to the power of the system that was set up. One last uh, point that, that I want to make before I talk about uh, grand strategy is how compelling this discussion should be. Do we use force and coercion to resolve our differences with respect to the international rules-based order, or do we use diplomacy and dialogue? The global stage is not getting any bigger. So as, as countries like China emerge on the global stage and take what I describe as their rightful place on the global stage. From an economic power alone, China uh, should uh, uh, occupy a significant place on the global stage. The rise of China is in everyone's benefit. As, and the competition that we're having, I think, could be to everyone's benefit as long as we understand the rules that we're playing by. That's what the biggest challenge is. And as China emerges on that global stage, countries are going to be displaced. The stage isn't getting any bigger. I would suggest uh, to include the United States. So the mechanisms that govern the frictions that develop as those countries are displaced are critically important. And those are being challenged, I think, in this, uh, in this competition. Let me talk a little bit about uh, grand strategy. So Atai already warned me that, that we may get into this, into the Q&A, about exactly what grand strategy is. So, so let me throw some defenses up uh, right now. Um, it is a robust discussion about exactly what a grand strategy is, but it's not active enough. The number of academics that are studying a grand strategy is, is not sufficient enough uh, to cover the challenges that we face today in the absence 
of having a grand strategy, especially in my view, when you take a look at from a U.S. perspective, I suggest my personal view is we don't have a grand strategy. There's many that disagree with that. I also believe that China does have a grand strategy. Ty today talked about uh, an uh, initiative in, in China that actually uh, began developing a strategy after the U.S. bombing of the uh, uh, Chinese uh, embassy in, uh, help me Ty, I'm drawing and Belgrade, exactly. I, I was blanking on uh, uh, the, uh, the city that it was in. I, I would suggest, uh, and this is the benefit of academic dialogue, uh, I would suggest that actually that strategy development uh, started back in 1995 uh, during the uh, Taiwan Straits uh, dispute when China launched some missiles across uh, Taiwan uh, into the Philippine Sea. And the U.S. response was to send a couple of carrier strike groups uh, to defuse the situation. Well, it may have defused the tactical and the operational situation, uh, but it kicked off a strategic competition. We just didn't know it. And it's, it's exemplified in, in uh, what, in the military, we all refer things to as acronyms. It's referred to as uh, A2AD, but uh, anti-access area denial. I've got another two-hour lecture, which is fascinating for me to give. I haven't heard anybody that's really interested in hearing it, so I'll, I'll spare, spare, you the, uh, spare you the pain. But it's emblematic of a strategy that was implemented, and we didn't even recognize what it was until it had been in run for, for 10 years uh, or more. So we, fee we see this manifestation of a Chinese grand strategy, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how, we, how we see that. Uh, but let me talk about uh, not what a grand strategy should be. That there, there needs to be a more robust uh, debate over what a U.S. grand strategy should contain. Let me talk a little bit about the value of a grand strategy. So in my view, in doing a fair amount of research and, and a lot of reading of uh, uh, some great academics uh, and, and professors that, that have done some significant uh, uh, writing and, and thinking about this, is to me a grand strategy needs to be very broad. And it's simply a, a nation statement of the, its view of its own international interest. It, in, in, my, in my view, a grand strategy, there are, are many sources that you draw from to describe what the United States' national interests are, not just from an internal uh, perspective, but in my view, uh, interest area uh, from an external uh, perspective. So I think we draw this grand strategy from, from three simple documents for sure, and, and I'm confident that there's others as well. So one is the Constitution, the other one is, is the uh, Bill of Rights, uh, and the other one is the Declaration of Independence. And it's got broad statements in it, such as we believe uh, these truths to be self-evident. It's, it's those broad statements that we grew up that are, that are baked into us as part of our culture. Now, this doesn't mean that we should impose those on others necessarily, but it does mean that should guide our activities, both as citizens of this country, but as also citizens of the world, especially a country as rich as this country is. It's in our interest, and I would suggest more than a responsibility, but an obligation to lead forward, to lead beyond our borders. 
uh, especially if you take a look at the challenges that we have with terrorism. We had a discussion on this, that we certainly want to fight terrorism as far from our shores as possible. And we want to win our economic battles and our diplomatic battles, I would suggest, as far from our, our shores as, uh, as possible. So you've got this broad, uh, grand strategy that is built. So how do you build that strategy? So this is, this is a question. I've asked this question of 30 individuals. I've never asked it to a, to a group, but this will help uh, grease the process of getting into the Q&A. Can someone here tell me how many departments, how many uh, secretary-level departments are there in the executive branch, cabinet-level departments? Does anybody want to raise tie? I, well, I lied to you, so if you're going to use that answer, Ty can be the one that's wrong. So I'm going to, I'm going to disimbue uh, Ty from sharing an answer. Does anybody have – and I didn't, I didn't know what the answer was myself. There's 15 of them, 15 cabinet-level departments. So don't stand in this audience and tell me that we have a whole-of-government approach to this competition that we have with China when we ourselves don't even know – how many cabinet-level departments there are in, in the administrative branch. So there's, there's a reason why the Department of Interior is not engaged in as building the grand strategy with respect to how we should think of ourselves I across the world. And a grand strategy is not a grand strategy with China. It's different. But all 15 departments play a role in building this grand strategy. And it has to be done in partnership with Congress because Congress has got to fund it. So you've got to have buy-in from the congressional side as well. I would suggest from a grand strategy, we have more than sufficient money uh, to, to design it and implement it. It, it really is, is guide more than anything else. So from this grand strategy, you build regional strategies. So you have a regional strategy, for instance, with Africa. Does China have a, a regional strategy with Africa? You're darn right they do. And where is it derived from? Their grand strategy. Does China have a strategy for the South China Sea? You're darn right they do. And they derive it from the grand strategy. So I listen to ambassadors, Chinese ambassadors, in, in Nigeria, they can speak eloquently about Chinese national interests in the South China Sea because the grand strategy is across the whole of government of, uh, of China. So this is where we develop uh, the regional strategies. And then from those regional strategies, all 15 departments are building those as well. From those regional uh, strategies, policy is developed. So Treasury has a policy that, that uh, implements the regional strategy tied to the grand strategy in Africa, in Europe, with NATO, uh, uh, you know, around the world where the U.S. has national interest. So that's how policy should be derived. But what do we use policy now for? Policy is, is, in my view, mainly used as an impediment. When something bad happens, we throw policy at it to make sure it doesn't happen again. So as a Pacific Fleet commander, I had congressmen coming through uh, the headquarters, you know, on a, on, a, on a regular basis, when it seems like whenever there was a break or when they could travel, um, they were interested in, what, in the Pacific, and they would stop in, in Hawaii since all the component commanders were there and, uh, and PACOM was there. Um, and I was grateful for those visits. But invariably, they would say, hey, you know, Admiral, what, what, if, if you could have anything in the world, you know, what resource would you want? 
and their perspective was, was of their constituency. So if they were Norfolk, what they wanted to hear was shipbuilding. Or if they were from San Diego, they wanted to hear shipbuilding, infrastructure. So my response to them was, I, Ty mentioned it, I had 140,000 sailors, there's 140,000 sailors that report for duty every morning in the Pacific Fleet. You know, 250 plus ships, submarines, 1,200 aircraft. I used to kid the CNO, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I said, you know, my, my Navy was bigger than his Navy. He only owned, 60% of the Navy is in the Pacific Fleet. So that only leaves 40% for the rest of the Navy. So that's where I claim my Navy was bigger than his Navy. So, uh, <laughs> He had a sense of humor, I hope. Uh, but the takeaway from that is I told congressmen, if I was asking for more resources, I'd fire myself. I, I had $500 billion worth of assets. When you talk about all the bases, we had a great discussion about uh, the military presence here in San Diego. So the Pacific Fleet commander is responsible for that. All the military presence in Bremerton, the shipyards in Bremerton and San Diego, all the military uh, presence in Hawaii, all the presence in, uh, in Japan, you know, 51% of the world. And I had a $13 billion budget to operate that fleet for a year. And I'm going to be asking for more resources? Well, if, if you don't need more resources with China eating our lunch, what is it that you need? And my response was policy relief. So with the policies were preventing us to do things with the resources that we had from a military perspective. And as I studied this deeper, I realized the problem just wasn't in the military. I'm going to come to closure here so we make sure we have time for, uh, for Q&A. Um, that it's too much in the military. So across those other 15 departments, I, I was just talking to someone at the conference here that mentioned that um, there had, uh, there's, a, there's a big issue in China right now with expired vac vaccines that, that were being used. Xi Jinping has... Uh, so many more challenges internal to China than he does external to China. So we've got, you've got uh, the uh, uh, HUD, um, you know, ha housing, health, you've, you've got uh, uh, the uh, Department of Agriculture. All of these departments have positive areas that they can engage with China. I talked about we had more in common than we do in competition with China. You know, the thought flashed through my mind, what if this vaccine had been produced in Taiwan and sent to China? You know, what do you, what do you think the opportunity was of that message to get spun as, as the regime in Beijing defends itself by saying, whoa, whoa, that wasn't us, that's Taiwan. That's why Taiwan needs to be a part of China. So these are not small, inconsequential questions. That's why institutions like this are so important to expand our thinking beyond freedom of navigation or these smaller points and to describe the competition uh, for, for, uh, uh, for, for what it is. So on the military side, let me close on this point. Everyone is fascinated with freedom of navigation operations. They're the most frustrating things for me, used to be. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's entertaining to watch them now. My, my relief, Admiral Aquilino, I'm sure doesn't share in that view. He probably has the same view I had when I was in uniform. But we spent so much time trying to explain what our intent was with any given freedom of navigation operations that we conducted as the Pacific Fleet to the citizens of the United States, just to the, the, the uh, academics, especially the law school academics. 
that, that we got in the circular discussion about, well, were you really challenging that part of UNCLOS? And, you know, what claim was it? What that claim was it? So why do we end up in this discussion? The reason we end up in the discussion is because we don't have a grand strategy. We don't have this, this vision of ourself that is articulated in writing that, that broadly does not change. It's so foundational to what we believe as Americans, not as independents, not as Democrats, not as Republicans, but what we believe as Americans, that we believe these truths to be self-evident, that this is in our national interest. We hear it from China. China describes it as, as core interest. And then from that view, you develop this regional strategy. And then eventually that regional strategy gets transformed into policy. And that policy says, go do these things. That turns into an operational framework at the component commander's level. And I think that there are are, uh, representative organizations within the other 15 departments uh, in the executive branch. And then it turns into tactical actions like freedom of navigation operations. So that when you do a freedom of navigation operation, we have a whole of government response. Doesn't matter whether you're in the Treasury, it doesn't matter whether you're in the Department of Interior, you're connected to the building of that strategy to say, we believe these truths to be self evident. We think it's important to navigate freely in all domains, not just the maritime domain. But our ability to navigate freely is being diminished and impinged in what I describe as the dime-filled domains. The diplomatic domain, we are not navigating as freely and openly. I mean, my last trip, Susan and I went to, uh, we're in Beijing in, in early December, and the, I mean, the visa app, I mean, if you haven't been to China, at least fill out a visa application. I mean, it is stunning. They, they want to know your, your children, uh, you know, all this, this data. And then when you get there, they've got these, these fingerprint uh, machines where they pull all the data in. So I, I won't, it was a government organization I was talking to. I'm not going to talk about which organization it was. So there's a state-owned enterprise that developed that hardware and software, and they've marketed it around the world. So you can go into countries that have that exact same system, but the, what the state-owned enterprise does, uh, all the data, they take care of the assessment of all the data. So you go through country X in Africa or Europe or wherever it may be, and you go through that process, all that data is going back to China to be processed. And that country gets a report back to say, citizens safe. You know, the, or they have, they're affiliated with this terrorist activity or, or whatever it may be. So what's being done with, with all that data? That's why I say our ability to, to uh, our freedom to navigate in the diplomatic domain, the information domain, clearly in the military domain, the economic domain, the financial domain, uh, the intelligence domain, and the legal domain is all being diminished. And so I'll, I'll close on this last point as an example of, of uh, uh, what I use to describe uh, the fact that those that suggest that uh, perhaps China doesn't have a grand strategy as well. What organization in the Chinese government uh, responds to every uh, freedom of navigation operation that the, the U.S. Uh, conducts? It's the foreign ministry. It's not the PLA. What organization responds in the U.S. government to explain what was behind the freedom of navigation operation? State Department it should. It's actually a, it, it's an activity conducted by the U.S. military 
to engender a dialogue between State Department that looks after our foreign interest and the country itself to generate a dialogue to say this is what the U.S. view is that, that uh, your application of UNCLOS is excessive in these areas, pre-notification of a transit, for instance, straight baseline transit. I won't go into all the, the legal details behind it. But the fact that an ambassador in Africa can describe uh, the Chinese government position as well as any the, Philippine, the Chinese ambassador in the Philippines or Indonesia or Malaysia, um, I, think is, uh, I think is compelling. So let me, let me stop at that point of successfully run you down to about 20 minutes, 25 minutes for, uh, for Q&A. So I'm, I'm happy to take any questions that you have on, uh, on any subject. It can, it can be grand strategy. It can be what's this competition all about. It's what we should be doing as a country uh, to military issues. Um, I'm not that strong in, in, in Europe, but um, I'm happy to take a stab at whatever questions you may have. Admiral, thank you very much. You mentioned Taiwan. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, you, were, you mentioned Taiwan and the crisis in the 90s when we sent the Navy sent two carrier battle groups there. Uh, what do you think would be the response in the current uh, climate should the Chinese uh, sort of call the question about uh, one nation to, in terms of Taiwan and China? It's certainly an opportunity. And given our current uh, national strategy, do you see what do you see as a U.S. response? So what the um, yeah, you know, Ty was kind enough. I'm always behind the times on everything. You know, I had been describing myself as an accidental admiral as soon as I made admiral, and then Jim Stavridis goes writes a book, and he, it's called the Accidental Admiral. I think yeah, geez, if, if only I could. I'm always just one step uh, one step behind. Um, so I realized when I made flag, uh, when I was junior, I thought flag officers had all the answers. And then I became a flag officer, and I realized they don't have any answers. Uh, and I th sometimes I think the most appropriate answer to give is, I don't know. Um, because if, if you profess to have an answer, uh, then I think you profess to have a solution. And if you have a solution without fully understanding the problem set, then chances are uh, the outcome is not going to be that positive. But, but let, me, let me address the question uh, uh, this way. First of all, you're the third person to ask me that question today, and that is heartening. Uh, so as when I was in uniform, uh, by policy, uh, I could not visit uh, Taiwan. So I've been, been to Taiwan twice, and it was compelling uh, for me. In fact, my wife went with me on, on the first trip. And uh, we were there for less than 12 hours, and we both turned to each other and said, it is, I mean, my expectation was, I don't know what her expectation was, but it's, it wasn't going to be all that different from, from China. We've been to China four or five times while I was in, in, uh, in uniform. Um, but we both turned to each other at the same time and said, this is completely different than China. And there were two things that, that I would describe it's, uh, of the Taiwanese people. Um, they had hope uh, for a future, and they were excited about where they were today. And I don't see that when I walk the streets, the streets of uh, Beijing or, or Shanghai or Guangzhou or some of the other places that I've been in, 
in China. So I, I think that the challenge that we have with uh, Taiwan is significant. It comes back down to uh, democracy and this sense of hope with uh, citizens that are empowered to make uh, decisions for themselves as far as who will govern them and, and how uh, they will be governed. It's, it's powerful. Um, so I think that the, the road ahead may be rocky with a competition, but there's, there's no doubt uh, in my mind what the outcome is. In fact, I would suggest that what we need to work is to convince China that the best thing for China is to embrace the rules-based system. And where the rules they feel disadvantage them, they should engage in the established system of changing those rules, uh, dialogue and diplomacy. But in specific answer to your question, we have uh, seven treaty allies around the world. Five of them are in the Pacific. The oldest treaty ally of those seven is, is uh, Thailand, uh, believe it or not. Um, they were one of the first, that, well, they were the first country to develop a, a defense relationship uh, with a very young uh, United States uh, many years ago. But uh, of those treaty allies, uh, I would use Japan as an example, is very, is very concerned about the veracity of that treaty. And they asked Secretary Clinton to reaffirm uh, uh, the defense strategy specific with respect to the Senkakus and Secretary Kerry as well. And they both responded that if military force was used in the Senkakus, that that would trigger the treaty. That was their statement. Well, if the treaty gets triggered, what that means is that we'll enter into a discussion with Japan about what's in their best defense interest. doesn't mean a strike group, carrier strike group, is going to come on over the, the horizon. It doesn't mean that the Fifth Air Force is going to be uh, reinforced. Uh, it doesn't mean that the U.S. Army Japan is going to be uh, reinforced. What it means is it triggers a dialogue. What's different about Taiwan is that we don't obviously have a defense uh, treaty with Taiwan, but we have the, defend, uh, we have the Taiwan Defense Act, and that act is reaffirmed every year in the uh, uh, Defense Authorization Bill, the NDAA. Every year we reaffirm our commitment to uh, the fact that the United States supports a uh, one-China policy, but the reunification of Taiwan with China cannot be done under duress and force. So if we make this commitment every year in our Defense Authorization Bill, we have to ask ourselves the question, if we don't act, what does that do to our international standing? What will that do to all the other agreements that we have across all the international rules-based order against, across all those international institutions, whether it's the World Bank, whether it's all these institutions that we have? How will that uh, reside within uh, the British government, strong partners that we have, the Australian government, the Japanese government? So this is, this is a compelling question. That's why I'm concerned that we don't have a whole-of-government approach, and yet we're pushing on the military piece. If there's a miscalculation in the military domain of freedom and navigation, it's very difficult for leaders of countries to back away from a military trigger. So if there's a miscalculation in the freedom of navigation operations, I'm not sure what kind of maneuverability Xi Jinping has to de-escalate the situation. His position is a position of weakness, not strength. He is not convinced the, the structure within China, despite the 19th Party Congress, uh, about the current position he has as, as leader for life. And I talked before about 
whether you're talking about Wagers and the internment camp and, and the penetration of, of uh, uh, freedom of information that, that has occurred and, and uh, present in China, certainly not on the scale that we're used to, but sufficiently to cause uh, concern within uh, the Chinese government. Um, so it's a compelling question. I don't have an answer to your question, but it's a question that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about. So I think the possibility of conflict with China is very remote, very remote. But I think the consequences of it are, I don't think anybody in this room, maybe a few people in this room, understand the implications of it. So let me, let me use an example. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. Um, so think to yourself, if you own a home, do you have fire insurance? And I would imagine the majority of you do. Do any of you expect that home to burn down before you get home tonight? Probably not very many of you. How about in the next week, the next month, the next year? I'm with you. I own a house that I grew up in here in San Diego. I can't wait for that in Point Loma. I can't wait for that thing to burn to the ground so I can get a return on that investment of fire insurance that I've been making for 34 years. That's where we are with a relationship in China. Of course you're not going to uh, cover that house with fire insurance. That's what I'm talking about, a grand strategy and a regional strategy. It needs to be well thought out. You have all kinds of options with fire insurance. What you cover, how much you cover, who you insure with, what's the deductible. Those are the, those are the compelling questions that we should be asking now. And we should use points like Taiwan to ask ourselves, if something goes sideways, if there's a vaccine that is produced in Taiwan that, that not necessarily malfeasance, but uh, from, from a litigious perspective, error on the part of the Chinese government, and, and, and that vaccine uh, was expired, could that be a trigger uh, that might get us into a conflict? You cannot predict uh, where a trigger may occur that, that leads to certainly regional conflict. Who would have predicted the triggers that caused World War II? Who were the biggest trading partners and the most consequential economies uh, prior to World War I? It was Britain and, and Germany. And it devastated their economies. It devastated both countries. Who were the two biggest economies and the two most critical trading partners going into World War II? Britain and Germany. So don't tell me the lessons of global conflict are understood. You would have thought they would have known. The space between those years was very narrow. That Once again, that's why organizations like GPS are so critically important, that we study these issues and ask these questions in consequential ways. And if someone throws an answer out that says, Here, this is what's going to happen, it's a broad spectrum of things that can happen. None of it is good. There's negative implications regardless of what decision uh, is made. I, I don't know if that's a sufficient answer, but that's what I've got in my hip pocket right now. Thanks for being here. Um, so i absolutely on board with grand strategy, uh, something that we need to develop. Um, we lost two more or a few service members in Syria recently. I'm still having trouble understanding how an advise and assist mission results in routine patrols. Um, and also... 17 years in Afghanistan, still interested in hearing that 15 departments articulate exactly what our, our role is there. Um, but I guess I'll black hat a little bit and say, how do we get there uh, across that many organizations when the government's shut down recently? I'm a bit of an opportunist at the moment. but Yeah. yeah. Um, so do I address the government shutdown first or second? Uh, 
So let, I'll, let me, I, I got asked this question in, in the, the same interview I, I had with, uh, with PBS. Um, one of the things that, that we should be mindful of is uh, the strength that we get from a free press. So I look for those opportunities to engage with the media. It's always dangerous, you know, that you never get it exactly right. And I'm changing my mind all the time. So by the time something gets published, I'm going, oh, I've moved on from that. Let me help, you know, correct things here. Um, but it's something that, that, that we should em embrace as an asset, uh, not, not an enemy for sure. Um, I'm going to come back uh, to make one point that I should have made earlier. The national defense strategy is not a grand strategy. So it, it, it talks almost exclusively about China. It has application elsewhere. And Matt Pottinger and, and, and the team uh, that built that strategy is to be commended for that. So we need to be careful about looking for individuals either, either to save us or to, to blame for our failures. Uh, it goes back to Rachel's comment in the McCarthy era, era and what happened when we, we got rid of a bunch of China experts and somehow held them responsible for getting the Indo-China policy wrong. Well, if the NDS strategy, I, I'm sorry, the national security strategy uh, is, is a regional strategy, in my view, the national defense strategy as well. And I commend uh, my friend General Mattis, uh, Secretary Mattis, for the work that he did in developing uh, that national defense strategy, because I think it's excellent, as I think the national security strategy is excellent. But in my view, it's a regional strategy. It's not a grand strategy. So let me talk about government shutdown just a little bit. I'll talk about my own experiences. Um, it's interesting to see the reports that are now uh, uh, coming out with respect to some of the administration. I don't know the veracity of the reports that are starting to have second thoughts about, holy cow, we didn't really understand the implications that it had from an economic perspective. Set the economic perspective aside. We can recover from that. We can't recover uh, from the foreign policy impact that that's having. I mean, look at, can you, look at what Macron went through in France with the recent riots there. He had a government to respond to that. And there were a lot of people in France that didn't like that response, but it was his response as the leader of the government. I mean, the you know, government shutdown, one of the modifying factors of it is, is that we have a lot of positions that we've never filled. I mean, I walk through the Pentagon and, and I look in the offices and you've got acting undersecretaries, uh, you know, the number of, of vacancies or uh, people that are filling positions that were not political appointees. I believe in political appointees. It's about civilian control of the government. So some people were saying, hey, this is great. We haven't uh, appointed uh, civilians into those jobs. That, that puts democracy at risk. That, those are what we believe. There's a reason that we have that process in place. But I, I'll come to the point. I, I used this example earlier today when I was the director of Navy staff. So uh, uh, I was a, essentially a glorified admin officer for the chief of naval operations and, and, and ran the staff supposedly to, to get the things done that, that he wanted to get done. But uh, I had a budget to, to do that work, and I had 30 people that worked for me, uh, actually 32 people. Two of them were in uniform, 30 of them were civilians. And this was a, it may be different now, since this is a partial shutdown. They may have not have been affected. But there's a broad category that applies to government shutdown. If you are essential, then you can, you, legally you can come to work. You don't get paid, but legally you can come to work. If you're non-essential, legally you cannot come to work. If you come to work, you break the law. I spent more time as a director of Navy staff when we went through the last government shutdown to make sure nobody was at work that wasn't 
legally allowed to come at work because you know we CNO would have gotten legal trouble if someone showed up uh, as a good citizen of the United States that just wanted to do their fair share of pro bono. It didn't work that way. Um, so I ended up with three groups of people, and that was a short shutdown. It was less than two weeks, as I remember. So I ended up with three groups of people, and it was my comptroller shop that, that ran uh, the, my budget as the director of Navy staff. So one-third one left. They were young people that were not vested, not vested in the retirement plan, and they had lots of other places to go in industry and business. I mean, they were comptrollers, they, and they were excellent at the work that they did. I had another group that was retirement eligible. You'd be stunned at the number of federal employees that continue to work despite being retirement eligible just because they believe in the country. They're never going to get rich. They're never going to be recognized. I mean, we in uniform, you walk through the airport, and if you're in uniform, you're lucky to catch your flight. I mean, so everybody wants to congratulate you, telling you what a great job they're doing. When I walk through the airport in uniform, there's 20 civilians, invisible, walking behind me that enabled me to do the things that I did in the military. I mean, as a flag officer, it's, you know, 20,000 civilians that are, that are walking behind me. Actually, it's about a 50-50 mix between uniform members and, and civilian members. So a third of them left. They felt that they had been disenfranchised. And then the third that was in the middle, they were stuck. They, they, they weren't, it, it wasn't, it was a morale issue, but it was really about the fact that they had been disenfranchised. They weren't mission essential. And some of it had served for 15 to 20 years thinking what they were doing for the nation was critical. That's the impact of the government shutdown. Set aside the fact that they couldn't make mortgage payments, they couldn't pay for, for uh, child care, you know, if they were sending their kids to, to private school, they couldn't afford to pay those bills, car payments, the rest of it. These aren't rich people. You know, they're not living hand to mouth, but they don't have resources and savings uh, to go beyond, you know, a month, two months, three months, many of them, especially uh, the younger ones. So more specifically to the, to the question about getting at the whole of government strategy, there's not unanimity, a uh, uh, grand strategy. There's not unanimity on what a grand strategy should be. That I don't think there's unanimity about how to build a grand strategy the way I described it. That's derived from talking and listening to a lot of people. But there is unanimity that the hardest place to build a grand strategy is in a democracy because it's got to be a negotiation. The easy, easiest place to do it is in an authoritarian, totalitarian, communist government. No one's arguing with Xi Jinping about what the grand strategy should be. Maybe six or seven others uh, at the highest level there in, in, the, in the Politburo. So they would all say this is very hard. So remember, the last, when's the last time? I think we did have a grand strategy at one time. So what destroyed the grand strategy that the United States had? What was the last one? It was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And we won. And we went off down the path that we're on now. And now we've got a peer competitor out there, and we're struggling with how to respond. We're responding with freedom and navigation operations. Google is struggling trying to get entree into uh, uh, the economy of, of China, and they're being criticized for the trades that they're making. They're a business. They have to make these business trades. That's part of being, you know, in a democracy. The rules-based system allows countries to make those kinds of decisions. I'm, I'm talking about uh, apps that 
uh, would not allow uh, private communications between citizens in China as a rule set. So I guess an answer to your question is I'm not so naive to suggest that this would be easy. This is going to be really hard. I, I, I said for a reason it can't be party Pacific. It has to survive the transitions between administrations. It has to be long term. Go take Britain knows how to build a grand strategy. We should go talk to them. Um, it, they're currently calling it Global Britain. I, I, my personal view, I think Theresa May came up with that term somewhat out of political expediency. It just came to the fore about four months ago. But in the, in the week that I spent in London, they're off and running. I mean, there's some brilliant people in the, in the British government that I was asked to speak to and, and in the British military as well on their joint staff that are off building a strategy. So 140,000 sailors work for the Pacific Fleet Commander. How many sailors are in the British Navy? Anyone know? 35,000. I spent more time telling them size doesn't matter. It's commitment that's matter. It's commitment from a strategy. It's a national commitment that says Britain has global interests. And this is what, this not necessarily is what those interests are. I think those are a regional strategy. But this is what British global interest is. We believe in free and open markets. We believe in free and open competition. We believe in the transparency of business transactions. We also believe in the sanctity of our personal information. You know, what information is ours is ours. The, the, these are the values that, that we have, I think, as a democratic nation. And that's the core, I think, of what a grand strategy should be. Let me stop at that point, Ty. Thanks again for... Uh... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.